0: Welcome to this week's reading of The Business Record. My name is Rachel Thorson-Mithelman. I'll be your reader today. This is for the week of October 28th. The um, introductory letter from the editor is this. In a given week, our newsroom produces 10 daily newsletters, four niche newsletters, and our weekly print. Issues in addition to event programming and special publications. We do that because it's our mission to do so. We want to help businesses do business better. I'm incredibly proud of the work our team creates to keep leaders informed and inspired. But we realize with so much news and your own specific interests, you may miss things from time to time, especially given your busy schedules. So we've decided to launch Business Briefing. This section will be one of the first things you see when you open up your print editions, and it offers the opportunity to catch up quickly while also learning something new. As a perk to members, we want to give you a place to see a digest of the top business news you may have missed while also supplying you with insider information about our community and its people. As always, we love feedback. If there's something you really like or something you'd like to see change, let us know. We do our work for you. Reach me at EmilyBarsky at bpcdm.com and join. Enjoy. Signed by Emily Barsky, the business record editor. So, as she was just reporting the business briefing, the five top things to know. First, Negative second quarter GDP. Iowa's gross domestic product declined 0.8% in the second quarter of the year. The third consecutive decline and a sign that one economist said could indicate the U.S. economy is headed for a recession if it's not already there. According to the U.S. Commerce Department's Bureau of Economic Analysis, Iowa's GDP declined slightly less in the second quarter than all of its neighboring states, but was slightly more than the U.S., which made a 0.6% decline in GDP. Second on these top five things to know, Ankeny Costco opening. Costco, a members-only big-box retail store that offers steep discounts on a wide range of items, is scheduled to open its new store in Ankeny on November 17th, according to the National Retailer's website. Construction of the 195,000-square-foot facility began last April. The development, located at 4000 Northeast Spectrum Drive, includes a warehouse retail store, tire center, distribution center, and freestanding fuel facility. The store will employ about 300 people, according to a company spokesperson. Hourly pay starts at a minimum of $17.50, according to the spokesperson. Costco, headquartered in Issaquah, Washington, has more than 550 warehouses in the U.S., including one in West Des Moines, according to its annual report. The third of the top five things to know, child-serve expansion. ChildServe announced October 17th that it will double the size of its Iowa City facility and open its first satellite location in the state in Hiawatha. ChildServe is taking a proactive approach to investing in the children of Iowa, said ChildServe CEO, Dr. Terry Wallig. We've seen growth in wait lists for our services following the pandemic, and have big plans to meet the increasing demand for children with special health care needs. The Eastern Iowa expansion projects are part of ChildServe's larger regional growth strategy, which includes enhancing our three main campuses in Ames, Des Moines, and Iowa City. These locations will become regional centers from which we can extend our reach to surrounding communities with satellite facilities. Groundbreaking groundbreaking for the 13,000-square-foot expansion of the Iowa City facility is planned for the spring of 2023. Fourth of the top five things to know, senior housing. An Indiana-based development group is proposing to construct a 90-unit affordable housing apartment project for senior citizens on vacant ground west of Southridge Mall. The proposed $13.7 million project would be located on Des Moines' south side on 4.4 acres that once were home to department store Montgomery Ward. The building was raised in the mid-2000s. AHEPA National Housing Corp., located in Fishers, Indiana, was created in the early 1980s. The group operates more than 90 affordable senior housing projects in 19 states, including four in Iowa, one in Johnston, and three in Ankeny. And the fifth of the top five things to know, Playhouse Capital Campaign. The Des Moines Playhouse has announced its $3.5 million Tomorrow Begins Today campaign to make improvements to its Kate Goldman Children's Theater. Through the capital campaign announced October 17th, the Playhouse will expand educational and production spaces, upgrade technology, improve seating, replace the heating and cooling system, and upgrade classrooms and administrative spaces. So far, the Playhouse has raised more than $1.4 million for the campaign. Construction is set to begin in April with completion scheduled for January of 2024. One fun fact, excuse me, from a local leader. Matthew Callanan, attorney and member at Bellin McCormick, PC, and a member of our 2022 40 Under 40 class, starred in The Last Five Years, a two-person musical in college. Check out the movie starring Anna Kendrick. This was one of many musicals on his resume. A key number to know. The number of homes sold in the Des Moines area slipped to 1,302 in September, an 11% decline from both August 22 and September 21, the Des Moines Area Association of Realtors' monthly report shows. The drop in the number of home sales coincides with the steady increase in mortgage rates. Last week, the 30-year fixed-rate mortgage averaged 6.92%, the highest level since April of 2002, Freddie Mac reported. We continue to see a tale of two economies in the data. Strong job and wage growth are keeping consumers' balance sheets positive, while lingering inflation, recession fears, and housing affordability are driving housing demand down precipitously. Freddie Mac, the federally chartered mortgage investor, investor, wrote in its release. And here's something from the public library. As an ongoing feature, staff members at the Des Moines Public Library recommend a business-related book to add to your reading list. Find this and more books like it at any of the Des Moines Public Library's six locations and online at dmpl.org. The Des Moines Public Library business book pick is titled The Burnout Epidemic, The Rise of Chronic Stress and How We Can Fix It by Jennifer Moss. Why should you read it? Journalist, author, and workplace culture expert Jennifer Moss's 2021 timely book explores how leaders and individuals can create healthier, happier, and more productive workplaces even as the zeitgeist focuses more and more on the concept of burnout. To solve the problem, Moss argues, organizations must focus less on things like self-care and resilience and more on creating practical strategies. And now proceeding to uh, what the business record article um, feature is, Closer Look, Meet a Leader You Should Know. Ruben Vazquez, Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer of United Way of Central Iowa. This article is by Michael Crum. Ruben Vazquez is the United Way of Central Iowa's first Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer and started the position last month. He has more than 20 years of experience in social justice, advocacy, and civic engagement, and has worked to advance diversity, equity, and inclusion at personal, institutional, and systemic levels in the nonprofit, for profit, educational, and government sectors. But it's not his work experience that inspires him to keep doing his work. Vasquez says it, it is it is his life story and that of his children, as well as as events like the slaying of George Floyd in May of 2020 just blocks from where Vasquez lived at the time in Minneapolis, that motivate him to create a more equitable world for all. Before joining the United Way of Central Iowa, Vasquez served as vice president of equity, people, and culture at Minnesota Community Care, a community health care organization in St. Paul, Minnesota. So the author asks, how did your prior positions and experience prepare you for your new role with the United Way of Central Iowa. I would say it's broader than those positions. I would say it's more so about my personal experience. It's a combination of those, but primarily it has been about my lived experience. I am an immigrant. English is my second language. I am a person of color. For the first seven or eight years when my family immigrated here from Mexico City, we were undocumented. So I have that experience. There have been a couple of instances where I have gotten pulled over, and instead of asking for my driver's license and insurance information, I'm being asked for my green card. It's never assumed I'm a U.S. citizen. Walking into Target, I have to teach my kids when you shop, you're biracial, so don't hold anything in your hands. You grab a cart and everything goes in there. Even if you don't buy anything, at least buy a pack of gum or something because it's been my experience as a person of color, I have been asked if they can see what's in my pockets because it's assumed that because I didn't buy anything that I have stolen something. So what has prepared me for this position is not so much my professional career, but really more my personal experience. The writer of the article asks, this is a new position, so there isn't a model to build from. So what are your goals for this position? I don't have a model, so we have to start from scratch. But also there is an opportunity that this is a new position and we're starting with a blank canvas, so let's put it together. The way I am approaching this is that it's going to be a collaboration with other members of the leadership team, the rest of the staff, our community members, and our partners. What are some of those areas we need to continue to build on? And what are some of those gaps we need to focus on? I don't want to build a plan that is based on me. I want a plan that is a collaboration so that the ownership is on everyone, not just one individual. Question, what are some milestones you can look to as you help the community on its DEI journey? I'm putting this work through three different spheres, the individual, the institutional, and the systemic. It's easy to say we need to fix the system. Great. Yes, we do. But in order to do some of that work at that level, we need to take a few steps back and actually work on ourselves first. Some of my milestones will be working with the staff to develop what that engagement plan is going to look like so that they, as individuals, can start building the awareness of who they are and the role they play within this institution. Then taking that and building that from an institution perspective and say, Who are we? What is our role in the community? How do we lead? How do we follow? How do we defer? and then understanding what is our level of voice in the community to start changing those systems that continue to be a barrier for some of our communities. Question, how do we as a community overcome some of our inherent biases and get people to take that deep look at themselves? There's no magic wand, and unfortunately, to get to that point, it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of time and a lot of patience. In real estate, the key is location, location, and location. In the world of diversity, equity, and inclusive inclusivity, it's really about relationships, relationships, relationships. You have to invest the time and energy to build those relationships within those communities. And sometimes it's going to take even more time with those folks who nod their heads and then they go back to their bubble of security and continue to go out and do their own thing. It's really about continuing to have a conversation with those individuals. It's hard. It's difficult, especially for people of color who are experiencing this all the time. When George Floyd was murdered, it was literally almost 10 minutes from where I lived. Immediately after that happened, all these companies, organizations, and groups started coming out wanting to help, saying, Can you believe it? And myself and other people of color were like, We have been saying this forever. Unfortunately, something like that had to happen for you to pay attention. In addition, if I am going to push you and ask you to be vulnerable with me to go through this journey and have those difficult conversations, it is equally important for me to be vulnerable with you because that starts building trust between you and I, so that then you and I can have those difficult, uncomfortable conversations. Question Why is it important for the business community to engage in this work? We have to start thinking about this from a proactive way instead of a reactive way. We saw it with George Floyd. What happened? when that happened. Everyone was reacting, although everyone of color was saying there is a fire coming and people were just not listening. The message I would send to decision makers is it's hard work, yes, it's messy work, it's uncomfortable work, yes, but don't turn your back on it. If anything, push through it. Question, what should the business community be doing? If you are bringing in somebody to do this work, but they are two to three levels down from those C-suite level decision makers, that is sending a message of the level of priority that exists within your organization. Where does this land? It almost feels like they are checking off the box to make themselves feel good. Those monthly or yearly lunch and learns and there's no follow-up, you're just checking it off the box. And if that is your intent, okay, cool, but own that. Own that and be like, I'm doing this because I'm supposed to be doing this. But if you're serious in this work, then invest in this work. Investment looks like money and people. If you are serious about this, you are going to make it a priority. And it's going to require you to take a look at yourself and take a look at your leadership team and your organization and be like, we have some work to do question, what does that look like? It could be like you're not just bringing in one person to do the work for 400 people. You need to be intentional about building a team to do this work. Set a budget to do this work. It is not incorporated into the HR space. It's going to have its own separate line item where this is for diversity, equity, and inclusion. I would also say it's looking like challenging your leadership. Maybe incorporate incorporate it under into their performance. Tie it to their performance. Tie it to their bonus. Tie it to their goals. Because otherwise there is no incentive, especially at those very high levels of an organization. Question, should there be metrics that gauge success of this work? There should be metrics because the data is going to tell you whether things are working. And those metrics should be developed based on the needs of an organization. At the same time, it's something difficult to measure the success of this work. The way of measuring success can be both qualitative and quantitative. It's a lot easier to measure quantitative because you just have the numbers. Qualitative is a lot more difficult, but I believe it's still doable. Question, what drew you to this position? I felt I was in a position in my life where I could and needed to do this work. The Twin Cities, it's a great place to live, but there is so much of this happening that to a certain extent it has gotten watered down. So I did not feel I was having the same impact that I knew I could. And this organization, the community, this position, I felt it could provide me with the opportunity to continue to make an impact in the community. To be able to walk into a community and be an advocate for the community and help change the community. Last question Is there a book you've read that other people should read? White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. It's an amazing book. Here's why I think it's important for people, especially people with the dominant culture, to read because she does a great job of speaking from that experience. She's a white woman. She identifies as a white woman, and she speaks to that audience, especially to the dominant culture, as to everything that is happening in our world right now. It's easy to put it on a group of people. The issues that exist are really all over, and she does a really good job to push people of the dominant culture to think about that and see the role they play in the system we live in. So that interview with Ramon Ruben, I'm sorry, Ruben Vasquez, the new Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer for the United Way of Central Iowa. It was written by Michael Crum. The cover story of this edition of the Business Record is Building Efficiencies. Virtual Reality One-Way Keen Project Solutions Sets Itself Apart in Construction. This is written by Kathy Bolton. Before steel beams were erected or electrical wiring and pipes for plumbing were installed for a five-story mixed-use development under construction in West Des Moines, the project's development team members were able to experience the final product through virtual and augmented reality software. The group from DRA Properties, Properties, L.C., saw whether ceilings in the project's underground parking were at a height that allowed a large pickup truck to be easily maneuvered through the garage. They noted the location of roof drains to determine whether water would flow onto condo owners' patios. They made sure light fixtures were placed in areas that maximized illumination. We were actually able to take a little bitty person on a computer and walk room by room and see where the sprinkling lines were, the water lines, the air ducts, said entrepreneur Dennis Alba, owner of DRA Properties, which is developing the more than $25 million West Des Moines project. We have not ever been able to do that before. The company that provided the detailed look at the project before the state of construction? Keen Project Solutions, an Ankeny-based company founded eight years ago. The full-service engineering and construction company is one of just a few in central Iowa that provide such a detailed review of a project before the first concrete footing is poured. The virtual reality walkthrough of a project cuts down the number of revisions made during the construction, a cost-saving benefit. The company has been using the software for about six years, but its founders have been finding ways to save customers money since the company began in 2014. Everything we do is targeted at saving our customers time and money and making the end cost of our product better than the next person's, said Dustin Waters, a senior vice president and partner at Keen. Before founding Keen Product Solutions, Matt Franson, Corey Larson, and Waters all worked at the White's Company. The three had different responsibilities in the construction company and often found themselves working together on various projects. In 2012, Weitz was acquired by Oriscom Construction Industries, one of the world's largest fertilizer makers whose headquarters are in Cairo, Egypt. After a couple years of working under new ownership, we each had come to a decision to make a change, said Franson, Keene's president. We had built a lot of trust and confidence in each other in the way we deliver our services, our professionalism. So rather than go our separate ways, we said, why don't we figure out how to come together? The Des Moines area construction market is competitive, and we knew we'd have to earn our way into business, Franson said. The three spent several days developing Keen's guiding principles before looking for projects or hiring employees. Those principles, protecting people, building relationships, focusing on end goals, and driving innovation, remain the foundation of the company, the partners said. Each of the partners brought a different strength to the business. construction, business development, and operations, said Larson, a vice president. Over the past eight years, we've each continued to grow in our individual specialties. In October of 2014, the partners met with representatives of General Mills, a food company known for its cereals and other products. The company planned on building a large gluten-free processing plant in Minnesota. The meeting occurred in a meeting room at a hotel in Ames. By Christmas, we had 27 rights, a project manager, and multiple superintendents, Waters said. We've just kept going and growing from there. Keene's largest client is Corteva Agriscience, the U.S.-based agricultural chemical and seed company that has its operations in Johnston. The partners had worked with Corteva in their previous jobs and had purposely avoided contacting the company about possible work. In 2015, however, Corteva reached out to Keen about work on a possible project, they said. To be clear, we did not call them. They called us, Waters said. Eric Sanders, a regional production leader at Corteva, said the company's relationship with Keen has grown over the years. Currently, the company does about $30 million and $60 million worth of work with Keene annually, Sanders said. Most of the work Keene has done with Corteva involves improvements and expansions to existing facilities, Sanders said. Among the projects was a $20 million expansion to a soybean facility in Litchfield, Illinois, that was completed in July of 2020. Keen's ability to use virtual and augmented reality to show Corteva leaders detailed expansion plans during the design process has, sorry to get to the end of the article, helped reduce the number of changes that occur during construction, Sanders said. Previously, other companies Corteva worked with used 3D computer modeling to show details of a construction project. That modeling, though, did not include all the minute details incorporated into Keen's virtual and augmented reality software programs. The 3D modeling was not the same as walking through and saying, hey, I can't access that valve, or my maintenance guy isn't going to be able to get up to that valve without a ladder, Sanders said. How things look on paper isn't always the way it operates when you actually get it built. That's been a really nice tool for us and not something everybody else does. It's unique to Keen. Keen is also Corteva's procurement partner, Sanders said. In the past, Corteva staff would negotiate purchase order agreements for materials and equipment, a process that took up a lot of time, he said. Now we are able to leverage Keen's buying power, because they are not only buying for all of our projects, but they're buying for other projects as well, Sanders said. We're able to reduce costs and the time required to do that on our side. It's been a nice service that we've had in place for a couple of years. While Corteva is Keene's largest client, the Ankeny company has dozens of others as well. Earlier this year, Keene completed construction of a $6.5 million dollar 31,000-square-foot office, warehouse, and distribution facility for pet parents at 1810 Southwest Magazine Road in Ankeny. In late 2021, it completed a $25 million expansion project for Purefield Ingredients Food-Grade Protein Production Facility in Russell, Kansas. Keene has also worked with hy V Inc.'s construction team by providing engineering support, project management, and procurement services for a commissary project in Ankeny and a food processing facility in Sheraton where it also installed food processing equipment. As Keene has added clients, its revenues have also grown. In 2018, Keene's revenues totaled $50 million, according to a company overview, over the next four years, revenues have doubled to $100 million in $100 million. In 2023, the computer's revenues are projected to exceed $105 million. What's in store for the next five years? Keen has experienced steady growth since its start in 2014. We're eight years in, but we still have the energy of a startup, Franson said. We embrace the idea of building a modern engineering and construction firm. The company is strengthening relationships with current customers as it seeks new ones, he said. We have to continue to provide great service to our customers, or great service so our customers have no reason to switch and go with another company. In the past 18 months, new leaders have been added, including directors of finance, engineering operations, and business development. The staff additions are helping position Keen for future growth, Waters said. The company is also stepping up its investment in employee training and professional development. Keen has diversified revenue streams, which means employees need diversified skills, company leaders said. Some employees have detailed knowledge and skills that focus on agricultural-related construction. Others have skills related to the development of food manufacturing or commercial facilities. We have these high-performing teams, and it's fun to see them create opportunities and serve our customers, Francis said. A goal is for Keene to be known for its integrated project approach, Waters said. We want to prefabricate as much as we can. Someday we envision building modular projects all around the country. We're going to get that good that we're going to engineer and fabricate them off-site and then stack them up on the job site. That's where we want to go. To get to that point means employing people who are well-trained, implementing a detailed construction process, and embracing cutting-edge technology, he said. That's the only way you're going to win in the future, right, Waters said? You have to do it differently than the next person. That cover story written by Kathy Bolton. Within the business record, there are several pages of news from the Greater Des Moines Partnership, so I will uh, lift up some of those, and they're mostly short um, announcements and so on. Eric Weinmeier to headline Partnerships' annual dinner. The Greater Des Moines Partnership has announced that its 2023 annual dinner will feature Eric Weinmeier, the first blind person to reach the summit of Mount Everest, as the headline speaker. The dinner will take place on Thursday, January 26, 2023, at the Community Choice Credit Union Convention Center. The partnership's annual dinner is the Greater Des Moines Business Community's celebration of the past year's economic and community development successes, and also provides a look forward into the future of the Des Moines region. Going on, Winter Farmers Market. The downtown Winter Farmers Market, presented by UnityPoint Health Des Moines, will take place in the historic court district in downtown Des Moines on Saturday, November 12th and Saturday, December 3rd from 9 to 1. Winter market vendors will have seasonal local produce, meat, cheese, eggs, jam, jelly, salsa, and many other varieties of value-added farm food and local art available for purchase. There will also be breakfast and lunch street food options on site. And Inclusion Summit on November 9th. The 10th Annual Inclusion Summit will take place on Wednesday, November 9th at the FFA Enrichment Center at the Des Moines Area Community College Ankeny Campus. Attendees will have the opportunity to learn more about what equity means and discover tools and resources to build equity-centered practices, systems, and organizations. The 2022 Inclusion Award winners will also be announced at the event. Keynote speakers for the summit include Dr. David DeLong and Tim Wise. Continuing with some other announcements, um, Holiday Promenade returns for five Fridays beginning in November. The Partnership and the Historic East Village Neighborhood Association will spread holiday cheer all throughout downtown Des Moines during the Holiday Promenade, which will return to the historic East Village for five Fridays of holiday cheer in 2022. The 21st Annual Holiday Promenade will begin on Friday, November 18th, and continue each Friday through December 16th. The holiday promenade in the historic East Village will be an exciting free celebration full of holiday-themed activities, entertainment, shopping, and family-friendly fun. Celebrate Global Entrepreneurship Week. Global Entrepreneurship Week is November 14th through 20, and the partnership and other community partners have programming during and before the week to help entrepreneurs succeed. Sales for Startups. On Wednesday, November 9th, this day-long revenue acceleration workshop will help startups at various points in their journey learn how to build, grow, and optimize their sales strategies and tactics. Raising Capital for Startups. Wednesday, November 16th. This day-long event will help startups learn how to raise the capital to take their business to the next level and Iowa Angel Investor Summit on Friday, November 18th. Iowa Angel Investor Summit is a one-day summit hosted by ISA Ventures and the partnership for active and aspiring angel investors to come together to help accelerate the entrepreneurs that are changing the world. And finishing with the partnership's hashtag DSMStrong bragging rights. These are just bullet Pieces of information: Casey's General Store was recognized as the first ever recipient of Convenience Store News Corporate Empowerment Award. Simpson College earned top ten regional ranking from U.S. News and World Report. Hubble Realty Company raised a record $60,000 at its annual Extreme Charity Golf Classic event. Des Moines Parks and Rec was announced as a finalist for the 2022 National Gold Medal Award. Better Homes and Gardens, a brand of Dot Dash Meredith, marked 100 years as an organization. The Iowa Confluence Water Trails Project received $8 million in federal funding allocated by Governor Kim Reynolds. Dick Goodson was named the 2022 A. Arthur David Award Honoree by Lead Des Moines. IEDC recognized the City of Bondurant's economic development leaders for excellence in the field, and Unity Point Health Des Moines announced plans for a new clinic in Waukee. About the partnership, the Greater Des Moines Partnership is the economic and community development organization that serves Greater Des Moines, Iowa. Together with 24 affiliate chambers of commerce, more than 6,500 regional business members, and more than 365 investors. The partnership drives economic growth with one voice, one mission, and as one region. Through innovation, strategic planning, and global collaboration, the partnership grows opportunity, helps create jobs, and promotes Des Moines as the best place to build a business, a career, and a future. Just a reminder that you're listening to the business record on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. I'm your reader. My name is Rachel Thorson Mithelman. And now we'll proceed to two articles. The first one, Cultivating Civility, National Summit to Focus on Creating More Civility in Local Government. Cultivating Civility, National Summit to Focus on Creating More Civility in Local Government. This is by Michael Crum. In December, local government officials will receive a lesson on civility. Civility has seemed to be on the decline in recent years, and there is some data to back that up. Whether it be disruptions at city council and school board meetings or in higher levels of government— or people's ability to get along and find ways to disagree without being disagreeable. Drake University's Robert D. and Billy Ray Center, the University's Center for Public Democracy, and Robert Palmer, who is general counsel for the Iowa League of Cities, have organized the National Civility Summit for local government. It will be held virtually from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. on December 7th. It is open to anyone— and is free to participate in, but registration is required. Through Robert Palmer, we reached out to the National League of Cities, and this is a growing area of concern for them, civility at the municipal level. And they came on board, so we've been working with the National League of Cities and the Iowa League of Cities to put this together, said Scott Raker, Executive Director of the Ray Center. It will be focused on solutions, and what are the tools we can equip municipal leaders, both elected and non-elected, to really continue to achieve optimal performance of their governance in a really strained, in, I'm sorry, in a really strained environment? Rieker said that strain comes from a variety of factions, including the coronavirus pandemic, diversity, equity, and inclusion issues that came out of the George Floyd slaying in Minneapolis and the increasing level of partisanship in nonpartisan governance, he said. The January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol also has added to the strain, Raker said. There's multiple factors that make it timely to have a national summit on civility, he said. Raker sees civility as how one person is nice to another, or how someone demonstrates etiquette. Good manners and politeness are all elements of good human nature. But that really is just the floor of what we're talking about, Raker said. The real essence of what we're going after is how do we have the difficult conversations? How can we disagree without being disagreeable? How can we work together to resolve really challenging situations in our community and the world? How can we help municipal leaders to advance the conversations of difficult and challenging issues, and with that to provide good governance for resolution and moving forward in a positive pathway, he said. Palmer said they are focusing on local government because local officials can provide the highest return on investment. If we're going to spend a certain amount of time training people to go out and be civil, be role models, to have these tools and use them, That's your highest return on investment, he said. They're in your communities. They're not politicking off in the distance. They're your neighbor. They're at the grocery store. You have that personal side. Palmer said municipalities can be an infrastructure for civil interaction. It's through structure, he said. But that structure is blind. So if I have the structure, if we have the rules, we know the rules and we follow the rules... I don't have to play the gotcha game. That's why it's important to have this structure. He said while the structure is blind, people are not, and are emotional and say things in the heat of the moment. We don't claim to say, here is the structure, you should do this way, Palmer said. What we're starting off with is looking at putting together some type of structure, and as long as you follow those rules, whether you are in power or not, those rules— should serve equally. Where is the line between healthy debate and incivility? Raker said things not only become uncivil if there are perceived threats, but also if someone feels like they aren't being heard. Things can also cross the line if a government meeting is disrupted to the extent that business cannot be conducted, he said. Raker said there are people who believe they have to be disruptive for their voice to be heard and that disrupting government meetings wouldn't necessarily be uncivil. Those are the type of things we need to be talking about. Part of the work on civility will be about building relationships in a way that people are actively, actively listening to better understand another person's perspective, rather than foment out that I'm right and you're wrong, and let me tell you why you're wrong, he said. It's also about working to find common ground, even if that means only agreeing that something should be resolved, Raker said. That might be the only agreement, he said, and there are people that in some cases don't want to resolve things. I grant that, but I think there are things you can always find to seek common ground. Civility, Raker said, is the opportunity for people that have challenging issues to bring before a governing body to have their voices heard within the processes of local government. And if the processes are not allowing for people's voices to be heard, why would you not expect that people would find other ways to be heard, he said. Palmer said there are always people who will perceive rules and structures as an impediment to having their voice heard. On one hand, we have government operations. On the other hand, we strive to have representative government And if we want representative government, we need to facilitate the interactions between the voters, the public at large, and the elected officials, Palmer said. Without the structure, it's the voices and interaction with the public that suffer. The government is going to conduct its business. We've got to facilitate and make sure that we continue to have that openness. Incivility is causing more elected officials to rethink seeking re-election or keeping them from running in the first place. Many many members of the public don't want to attend meetings, he said. It has become a hostile place, and that's not going to lead to the level of government we want, Palmer said. That's not going to get the greater leaders, the great leaders, to serve. It's not going to get the great voices participating. The people who are honestly trying to make things better, they're not going to want to deal with this. They're going to go home and be with their families or join another club instead of helping with local government. It's important for local governments to be proactive and get a structure in place before an issue forces them to react, he said. There will be a panel of people with diverse backgrounds that will participate in the December 7th summit. There will also be opportunities for questions and answers and sessions on strategies and tools governments can use. A full list of speakers will be released in the coming weeks. Raker said one issue is the introduction of partisan politics into local nonpartisan races such as city council and school board. No one gives up their right to belong to a political party, but local issues such as roads and sewers are not partisan issues, he said. Part of this may be more rooted in the necessity of better civics education, Raker said. I think there is a general lack of civic understanding and education in some areas. The partisan engagement in local races is having an effect on civility at the local level, he said. When you start to see, which we are seeing in Iowa, both political parties engaging in nonpartisan elections, it brings this, the party helped me get elected and the party would like to see this done, and nonpartisan government should not bring that to it. It's what's best for the constituents, Riker said. There have been city council and school board meetings disrupted beyond the point of being able to conduct business, and chambers of commerce no longer host forums with elected officials because they too often devolve into shouting matches, he said. But does that mean people are less civil than in prior generations? While 24-hour news cycles and social media may bring more focus on incivility and create a perception that incivility is more pervasive today than in prior generations, there is some data suggesting that it is more than just perception. The Pew Research Center released a report in August that shows that people's feelings toward each other based on their political affiliations have deteriorated in the past six years. The report shows that from 2016 to 2022, more people of both parties say people of the other party are more dishonest now than six years ago. More, people, more say people of the other party are immoral, less intelligent, close-minded, and lazy. It used to be, I don't like that party. Now it's, you're a member of the party. I don't like you, Raker said. That's a huge shift. The real question is, can we get better than today? He said, we must, we can. Data would back up the fact that from six years ago, we're trending in the wrong direction. We're not making progress. That emphasizes the need to keep nonpartisanship at the municipal level, Raker said. The data is clear that when people are ascribed to a party, that people from a different party have a perception of them of being more closed-minded, more dishonest, more immoral, more unintelligent, and more lazy. And that is not a recipe for good governance. This is by Michael Crum. So the National Civility Summit for Local Government will be on Wednesday, December 7th, from 10 in the morning to 2 in the afternoon, and it's virtual. And we'll end this edition with odds and ends The Elbert Files by Dave Elbert. Mount Rainier is going bald. I was 14 when I first saw the western Washington volcano's snow-covered peak on a family vacation in 1961. The 14,417-foot mountain is visible in clear air from more than 100 miles, including in Seattle, where Rainier's snowy crust was ever-present back then. I didn't see Rainier again until 1975, when my wife and I honeymooned on the Olympic Peninsula. At that point, little had changed. Not so in 1999, when I drove daughter, Holly, to Seattle for an internship. By then, Rainier was often hidden by industrial smog. Still on rare days when conditions were right, the mighty snowcap could still drive conversations. Earlier this month, Amy and I visited Washington and Oregon, flying in and out of Seattle, but smoke from forest fires hid the mountain our entire trip. That was disappointing because I wanted to see what the now nearly naked peak looks like. News reports earlier this year said an unprecedented heat wave in late June when Seattle temperatures exceeded 100 degrees for four days in a row melted 30% of Rainier's snowpack. The same is true with other area volcanoes that we were able to see, including Mount Hood and Mount Jefferson in Oregon and Mount Adams in Washington. All are 10,000 to 12,000 feet in height and today gray, is the dominant color on their once white peaks. Cities and farms in the Pacific Northwest depend on melting glaciers for water and to keep forests from turning into tinderboxes. Needless to say, that is not working out well these days. Car alarm. Our trip to the Pacific Northwest included five days in the San Juan Islands, northwest of Seattle, which we reached in a rented Audi Q5 SUV. The hour-long ferry to Orcas Island is typically a leisurely trip, but our crossing was marked by the Q5's anti-theft alarm, which repeatedly went off. The gentle rolling motion of the ferry as it crossed the bay triggered the Q5's alarm time and again, prompting the captain to twice announce on the loudspeaker, Would the driver of the Q5 please return to your vehicle and shut off an alarm? After the second announcement, I opted to remain below deck with the car's key fob control in hand so I could quickly kill the alarm as soon as it sounded, which it did three more times. Once we reached Orcas Island, Amy googled Q5 Panic Alarm Ferry and learned this is apparently a common enough problem that it has been written up and solutions suggested. On the ferry ride back, I tried two of the solutions, and the second one seemed to work town follow-up. Earlier this month, I raised some questions about the town Entertainment District Iowa State University athletic director Jamie Pollard wants to build in the floodplain between ISU's football and basketball venues. Pollard compared the district to successful private ventures in Kansas City and Green Bay. The purpose, he said, is to generate money for maintenance and operation of Iowa State Center facilities, which include the football and basketball venues and C.Y. Stevens Auditorium. I wrote that there might be legal and environmental questions about the proposal, which prompted an email from my former boss, Michael Gartner, whose resume includes stints as editor of the Domingo Register and the Ames Tribune, where he won a Pulitzer Prize for editorial writing president of NBC News and chairman of the Iowa Board of Regents during the early 2000s. Until recently, he also owned the Iowa Cubs and wrote City View's Civic Skinny, a who's who column that occasionally ruffled the feathers of local leaders. Gartner also has a law degree and is an avid reader of legal texts. His email began, I don't see any exceptions in the Iowa code for Cytown. Gartner went on to quote at length section 23a.2 of the code which is titled state agencies and political subdivisions not to compete with private not to compete with private enterprise it lists a few exceptions none of which appear to include SciTown. those are odds and ends by dave elbert that brings us to the end of today's reading of the business record for the week of october 28th I'm your reader. My name is Rachel Thorson Mitleman. Thanks for sharing your time with Iris.